Uh, would you please state your name, your preferred pronouns, and your job title here at Sarah Lawrence College? Sure. I'm Kim Ferguson. I'm Dean of Graduate Studies currently, but also on the psychology faculty, and I use uh, she, they pronouns. For the Sarah Lawrence Library, I'm Tim Kale, and this is the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. For today's episode, we're joined by Dean of Graduate and Professional Studies, Kim Ferguson. Kim was so nice and upbeat and positive when I met her, and she was just an absolute delight to talk to. So I I wish for you that experience. If you bump into Kim, say hello, and she'll just brighten your day. And she brightened this podcast, and I'm really happy to share this episode with you. But before we start, I encourage you to give the podcast a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This is your way to leave a positive mark on the show and help us continue defining our audience. You can connect with us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Remember to visit the library website at sarahlawrence.edu slash library for any of the many services we offer, including booking a consultation with one of our research librarians, booking a study room, or using our sewing machine or 3D printer. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions that you'd rather not share over social media, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. The Sarah Lawrence Student Life Preservation Project is accepting contributions. Visit slcstudentlifeproject.omica.net for more information. That URL will be in the show notes. Thanks for joining us today. We hope this episode finds you well and that you share it with your friends and colleagues. Now let's begin. On a side note, that's the first time I've gotten through the entire intro without messing up. Yeah! What is it that you do? And I ask in earnest because I I, I have no idea. Um, Yeah. What is it that a dean of studies, dean of graduate and professional studies do? Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a really good question. And I think that I would have given you a very different answer every year I've been in the position uh, <laughs> and also a very different answer before I came into the job, although I did try to do my research and thinking about what I was taking on. Uh, you know, day-to-day basis, I'm really responsible for the smooth running of all of our graduate programs. And I have responsibility for both the curriculum um, the fa- and the faculty but also for um, our staff and for all of our students. So uh, what that means is that I do spend a lot of time working with our program directors and uh, they primarily are working directly with students, right? Supporting their needs, hiring faculty, supporting faculty, supporting their staff. So I work very closely with them. Uh, But I also have a team in graduate studies where um, we address broad issues for graduate students, student life, student work. 
work. Uh, Todd Paddiford is new to our team and we're very grateful to have an assistant dean who's focused on students and has a student affairs background. So he works a lot with individual students and with the Grad Student Association, reports to me. Uh, and then Joan McCann really keeps all the trains running. She's our director of administration. And so we work closely on working with other officers. So right now, for example, we're working on graduate student registration. And so we're working with the finance office, we're working with the registrar's office, we're working with student accounts, we're working with financial aid to ensure that, and then with program directors to ensure that we have we know all student statuses, we're registering them correctly, we have all the courses up online and that. Um, on the other side, we're also starting to plan for our, bu our grad budgets, our operating and compensation budgets for the next year. So we spend a lot of time in spreadsheets talking with program directors about how they're managing their budget, what the priorities are. Um, and it's not so much, I mean, we do get into the technical a little, but it's also thinking conceptually about how we have the strongest programs possible, strongest curriculum, but also effectively supporting our students. And then the other big thing we work on at the moment, is, and it's year-round, is admissions. So we work closely with the admissions office uh, to set up systems for um, admissions for each program and manage the schedule, work with financial aid so we have the right letters, the right language going out, info sessions and things like that. So yeah, it's a very day-to-day -day administrative job. I love spreadsheets, a lot of meetings, um, a lot of technical um, things, which I really enjoy. Uh, I, I'm trained as a research scientist. I really enjoy working with data um, and systems, but um, but it's also a lot of working with people and trying to ensure we're all working together effectively, which which I also enjoy. Yeah, that is. Yeah. So I don't know much if that gives you a better answer. <laughs> no, that definitely does. That is a lot of work. That is a ton of work you're doing on your SLC profile. It says you are interested in cultural ecological approaches to infant and child development. Yes. What is a cultural and ecological approach to an infant and uh, child development? Yeah, yeah. So when I have some time, I do still do some reading and writing and work on some theory and some research. I actually have a research lab that's ongoing. Uh, we do, we're doing work mostly on play at the moment, actually working with the Early Childhood Center and Child Development Institute on a redesign of the play spaces. You might have um, heard that this is all going on. So I do have an active research lab uh, and research students. And what, what I'm most interested in is how we best understand the factors that influence um, human well-being, human functioning, human development, and health. And I became really interested in working with infants. I mean, one, I do really enjoy young children. I enjoy spending time with them. I, I, and I, I spend a lot of time working with infants in Malawi during um, a time when we're right in the midst of the AIDS pandemic, and what that meant is that a large number of infants were ending up without homes in their extended families because the population was being, the adult population was being decimated by HIV/AIDS, right, in the 80s and 90s, and so we had these emergency infant homes 
that we're trying to hold infants, support them, enhance their development. And so I got involved in working directly one-on-one, -on -one, just providing basic care, play. I became very interested in play, but also well-being and health and how those are all integrated. So I'm really interested in those issues from a personal standpoint, but I became also in undergraduate, um, my undergraduate work really interested in infancy from the perspective of this is really your early environment, right? This is your first, you know, first operating in the world, first experiences. And as a cognitive psychologist, I was interested in thinking about, well, where is um, time zero, right? Before culture. Of course, I learned I was completely wrong very early on in my undergraduate degree and then my graduate that really uh, infants' development is influence they're immersed in their cultural and their environment and their physical social environment from conception right and even preconception we know a lot more uh, about uh, what some influences on and our genetics from you know for generations right and so I'm really particularly interested in us trying to understand uh, how we look at the interplay of different factors that influence functioning and development and particularly how we get away from what has happened in my field in infancy is a, a focus in our research partly driven by the publish or perish uh, nature of academia very hard to study infants you can guess they burp they poop they cry you know it's hard to and so people just to get their research done and publications out not necessarily a justification are largely studying weird infants white western educated industrialized rich democratic folk um, usually often we have a lot of um, infants of graduate students who happen to be <laughs> an easy source in a large institution I went to Cornell for my graduate program and so it's not that that work isn't useful it just doesn't really represent childhood as a whole, infancy as a whole. And so I'm really interested in thinking about what it means to study infants in different contexts, different environments, and how we might fundamentally actually understand basic cognitive functioning really differently if we do that. So that's I know so that's a long answer. I could talk for a long time yeah. on this one. Yeah. Uh, ta uh, talking is good for a podcast. Am I correct in thinking that infant and child development is not the same thing or should not be confused with raising children? Yeah, yeah, you definitely should because, you know, folk feel like, well, I must know exactly what I'm doing with my own children since this is my area of specialty. And, well, first of all, after age three, it's all over. That my focus is, is pre-age three. But, yeah, I think... The way in which children develop has multiple factors, multiple influences over time, and there's very different area of work to really study parenting and parenting practices. And I, but I am actually really interested in us really understanding family systems, and mm. I've written most recently and done some work uh, with some some other folk um, and some work at Penn, with folk at Penn State and thinking about how we understand the family context as part of the whole context of the ch child's environment. Often family studies gets quite separated from studying basic infant and child development. And uh, really, I think it's very hard to understand a child as an individual outside of their family and structural and cultural context. But how we define even what parenting is or family structures, of mm -hmm. course, could vary in different places. Yeah. Okay. What is face processing? 
Ah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an area I've been really interested in for a very long time. It's how we are able to distinguish between one face and the other face, right? Someone else. How we recognize people. It's a for um, human functioning. It's a big part of most people's experience, although not everybody's experience, right? And recognizing people and being able to navigate the world. I really became interested in how we do this because. Uh, I, I'm interested in basically how we organize the world. My work's on categorization, right? How we first organize the world, how we then uh, can more efficiently operate in it. Um, and I had a grad school colleague who was really interested in eyewitness testimony and the fact that, uh, that adults are really, really bad at differentiating between faces of folk from other ethnicities and white Americans are particularly bad at this and this has significant implications as you could guess for eyewitness testimony lineups and people being uh, accused of a crime they didn't commit mm -hmm. so we became very interested in that issue together working in different places and so we started doing some work on how infants first form, uh, are first able to recognize faces and how they differentiate between faces. And part of that is tied to the fact that very early on, infants are very good at doing lots of things, right? And so they good at they can differentiate between different phonemes in many, many languages in the first months of life. They're not as good as adults, but they're better than adults at doing multiple languages, right? Mm. Then in the first few months, between six and eight, eight months, they start focusing on the languages they hear in their environments. And it turns out they do the same thing for faces. And mm. so what that means is that the faces that you see in your first few months of life influence which faces you become expert at processing as an adult. Mm. And so that obviously has significant consequences for what we we're exposing infants to very early that then has public policy implications. So that's, yeah, yeah. a very long answer to face processing. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned earlier that your expertise goes up to three and then you three-ish yeah. and you cut it off. Why does it, why does it cut off? Yeah, I mean, yes or no. So that's where I started. That was a lot of my training was in those early years and really understanding cognitive and language processing in those early years. And one of the reasons why it's sort of that's a particular expertise is that how we even process language and therefore how language intersects with cognition changes across our lifespan. So that was the focus of my work. I, though, started in... First of all, I chose a graduate program that was lifespan focused, which a lot of developmental programs aren't, right? And so I was interested in lifespan. But I started quite early working with colleagues and realizing I couldn't really understand infants without understanding their families. And I started doing some other work that's more community-based. I do have done some work with teenagers. Um, I've done some work with elementary school age, preschool, less with middle school. That's a tough age group. I don't know. Um, and I do some work with college students. So I have done work across the lifespan, but most of my focus is in those early years uh, where there's real differences in how we're organizing our world as language is developing at the same time as our other cognitive processes. We don't represent things in the same way when we're eight months as when we are three years old because 
by three, we have we can form sentences. At eight months, we're not forming sentences, and so our representations of the world are quite different. It's kind of interesting. So would it be fair to say that that age group is your passion? Yeah, yes. absolutely, Good. yes. yeah, Good. That's yeah. great. So I'm curious, what's your favorite course to teach here at SLC? Oh, wow, that is really a tough question. I've taught so many that I've enjoyed. I, You know, right now I'm teaching a course that I've actually taught in different iterations over many, many years for our child development students, for our art of teaching graduate students, and also for undergraduate students, theories of development. I love that course every time because we get to re-examine the foundations of the field mm. and both the challenges and opportunities of different theoretical approaches and to hear new voices from students as they start to examine those theories in light of their observations, their work with children in the classroom, their work with children in many other contexts and clinical contexts and so on and really yeah, shake up the foundations of, of the field as a whole, right? The field of developmental psychology and re-examine the ideas that I think, oh, well, this is an, this is an obvious one. And then I'll have a student who will bring up a question and we'll sort of re-examine it together and say, well, maybe not, right? Yeah, so I do really enjoy that course every time, even though, of course, we do cover some foundational theories, the same theories every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, if you don't mind, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my childhood. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I'm not sure I can help. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I grew up in California in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And it was a beautiful childhood. It was all light and play and Batman and Ninja Turtles and Pinky okay. and the Brain. Uh, then we had to move to Connecticut because my dad got a new job. Mm -hmm. During that transition, like between houses... Uh, my grandmother died, and I actually saw her die. Oh. Uh, like, I vividly remember seeing her last breath in this hospital room. So, after that, a dark cloud seemed to hover over me and my life. Uh, around the years between 1995 until finally I went to college in 2005. So, I was depressed at a young age for about, yeah. like, going on 10 years. Uh, what can you tell me about the, the way depression works in a child's mind, how it shapes it, transforms it in the years ahead? Yeah. You know, that's a tough one, right? How old were you when um, you made that transition around? <sighs> Seven or eight. Seven, eight, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, that's a, that's a hard time for a big transition like that and also a significant life experience like that, right? Because you're old enough to really understand what it means, but you're not old enough to have had the experiences that help you put that in a bigger context in a way that we can start to do more and more as we get older and certainly as adults. And so... It's tough. I think the whole context that you're in matters, the fact that you made that, sh that shift from a different context, a different environment. We actually were talking last week in my theories of development class about these biosocial behavioral shifts. Um, but sort of a major shift in multiple aspects of a child's life and how that influences them. I mean, what I would say is I'm curious what you found helped you, right? Because every individual... 
I think, needs a whole structural support, right? Individual people, environmental changes, and so on. And navigating those pieces during your developmental years is really tricky. Um, you really need a significant support system, too. It sounds like you figured you got that at some point, at some level. Yeah, I well, I my dad's a tough one. Yeah, okay. Um, he was an alcoholic. Mm, well, see, that's so, a whole other piece to navigate. Exactly. Yeah. So I was trying to navigate that. But, but I, and I mm-hmm. don't want my dad to be only referred to as that because there was a lot of joy in our family. Yeah. Uh, holidays were particularly a joyful time. And, uh, you know, we did have fun. But well, once we got to Connecticut, it was almost like the... like. California is literally sunny. Like it's yes, just it's a sunny yes, place. Yes, yes, yes. Connecticut can be very gray. Yeah. And cold. Yeah. And uh, that affected my mood pretty profoundly. Yes. And I got through it by retreating to things like movies and mm-hmm. video, and video games. Yeah. And and my mom. I have I've yeah. I always had a really good relationship with my mom. Yeah. Um. So, and my brothers, we had, we had fun growing up together. Uh, and you know, we're all grown now and we all have these histories Yeah. and it's just interesting to think that there are these other people who I grew up with and we went through that together. Yes. Um, like I don't understand how to articulate what that feels like to know that. Yeah. But it's, it's odd to think like, it's like something that happened in another life. Yeah. You know, yeah. But um, I was gonna ask you, uh, where did you grow up? If yeah, you, if you don't mind me asking. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I'll say um, before I answer. I mean, for you, I think it sounds like you had some of those structural opportunities, right, in yes. your family systems, and also challenges, and those do add up. And we know very little about the impact of season and light on children, um, but we know a lot more about adults, and it makes good sense that that would translate. Interesting. Uh, you know, the phys- for me, the physical environment actually has... Um, in some ways a more significant impact than the social because it impacts both you and everyone around you. And so it sort of has that dual or multiplicative effect, right? Yes, so, yes. yeah, I don't think that can be underestimated. And I, in fact, grew up in a very sunny place. And it's I, it's an adjustment for me every season to figure out the light. Um, the and, light and is just tricky. We, ju- we just had daylight savings. Yes, time. and it's... it's it, it's fear. It is something that I know profoundly impacts me, and I recognize it when it happens, and I anticipate it every year. Uh, but I, I grew up in Malawi mostly, um, southern Africa, and it's subtropical. So the light is about the same every day the whole year round. We're quite near the equator. Um, and our temperatures, if, if it's 60, it's cold, you know. We're in the 70s, 80s, most of the year round. It's a very different climate. I'm mostly, I, I moved to Malawi when I was eight. Before then, my parents moved around a bit, actually, 
I could tell a long political history for why uh, they came out of Zimbabwe right after the Civil War, um, came over here, started work, had family who were sick, went back. We're going to come to Malawi, and we're actually, as teachers, they are both middle high school teachers, they were banned from entering Malawi. They had job offers, and they changed. Um, there was a law change that banned Zimbabwean teachers because of concerns that they would... Um, be bringing concerning political agendas. Uh, and so so we were stuck in, so we were in South Africa for a few years um, under apartheid, which was, I think, very, I know, very challenging for my parents um, to navigate and think about. And, uh, and we, so we were there for a few years. And in fact, my dad sold insurance door to door for a year or two before he got a teaching job in South Africa but and I have some memories of that but most of my upbringing was in Malawi I, I actually under a dictatorship until 1994 so we wow. had quite significant dress laws and restrictions I think about this a lot with you know as I see my own children we didn't have TV actually L really didn't have TV because we um, it wasn't allowed in for a while with the programming and so on and then it was very expensive once people could have a satellite dish we didn't really have it we didn't really have any tv we borrowed had some movies on occasion um but we had a lot of dress laws and other things um but you know i went to school like most kids do <laughs> and all the rest of it i i just think it was quite a different when i think about the political climate um yeah. it was a really interesting time for malawi and and quite transformative when we came to a multi-party system when i was a young teenager actually it was kind of a really big shift for all of us so uh, this is just a very basic question what was the most enjoyable time you had uh growing up was it when you were a little girl or was it when you were a teenager or 20s uh, what's what was the best experience thus far oh wow <laughs> you're asking a developmental psychologist who doesn't like to put labels on <laughs> periods so you know, I will say that I have really joyful memories of many times, but particularly a period when I was probably 8 to 11 um, or so, um, <clears throat> when we had first moved to Malawi. I guess the first few years, I was in elementary school and then early, early high school for us, middle school here. Um, and I, I just have these really joyful memories of playing with my siblings. Um, I have a brother who's 18 months younger and a sister who's uh, five years younger than me, playing outside in our garden. And we would play these games with sticks and rocks and soil and dirt. And so that really, those memories really stick with me uh, in, in, in thinking about the profound value of play. And we hear these types of memories whenever we do community adventure play experiences or other um, programming, uh, related programming on play. We hear these sort of rich play memories from this time period in people's lives. And I think it has a profound impact on their long-term trajectory. Yeah. Isn't, isn't, I'm finding this for myself, but... Isn't play still important when you're an adult? Absolutely, Don't yeah. We, like we need to play. Like I, sometimes I'll just be outside, and I'll look at these uh, the rocks dotting a, a little bit of water, 
And I think when I was a kid, I would just take off for those rocks and yeah. jump on them. So I did. I took off and I ran on them and I felt alive. I felt so good. Yes. So we need play. We do. We do. And I think that we kind of contain that or have it contained for us in a way. I mean, we obviously talk a lot about the ways in which schools are challenging and challenged by current expectations of whatever we call it. It's no child left behind. It's race to the top. It's whatever it is. And that we're actually losing that fundamental joy, but also that creativity and productivity that comes out of allowing play and creative exploration and more student and child led exploration right and i hope that we try to play at sarah lawrence a bit i see you (laughs) you have a little bit here um we do joke sometimes over and outside of child development art of teaching that the times that you can really explore and play and be creative are in early childhood and then in college if you come to school like sarah (laughs) lawrence so we sort of do all of it but yeah we are concerned that that is something that should be lifelong yes should be lifelong just mm. one day we just see a bunch of uh, parents chasing each other in a, yeah. in a park. <laughs> well, you know, having your own children allows you, gives you a little opening yes. to play in a way that people feel, I guess, allowed to play yes. when they're playing with their own children. But of course, that can mean that they take over the game, which is not always the best thing for the child. But yes. yeah, I think people feel that opening a little when they're with children. Yes. Hopefully, or they get into role-playing or board gaming. I mean, there are many ways to play as an adult, of course. That's true. Yeah. That's true. If you could go back in time and say one thing to your child self, what would you say? I don't know. That's really interesting. I don't know if I've thought about that before. I guess I would say be open to change because I couldn't even begin to imagine what my life would be when I was five or six or eight or even 15. And I think that openness to, to change, to learn, to be in a different place, do different things, allows growth and I guess greater joy, whatever lands on your plate. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah. that's great. I heard that you have three kids. I do. Oh, okay, great. All right. So (laughs) uh, did you always know that you wanted to have children or was that a discovery? Yeah, no, I think yes. Yeah, I've always, I've always been interested in how people think, right, sort of intellectually, but I've also always really loved spending time with children and done things with children you know programming whatever I was doing from you know from when I was young so yeah I think I think I always knew I wanted to have children I did I know what I was getting into a hundred percent not um but they do bring me great joy as I would have anticipated they would so what uh, what is that What, what have you gotten into that you didn't realize you know it's that And you know this, but then you really know it when you're living it. It's that every day 
some knowledge that what you do, what you say, how you interact with the world has this profound effect on another human being. And obviously that's true in the classroom, that's true in a work meeting, that's true in friendships, but it's true in a profoundly different way for me in someone who's dependent on me financially and in their decision making. And it's also made me think a lot about what it means to have choice and to have power and what that means. I mean, you know, if my children don't make their bed or set their table, the table or whatever else I've asked them to do, there's some power power dynamics there that are very challenging for me to think about and navigate as someone who studies children and studies community-based work with children because, yeah, that we have that sort of relationship. They are dependent on me in a way. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a profound responsibility. And I think about that a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just in every word I say, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could weigh, weigh down a lot on you, I think. Um, How do you make sure it doesn't weigh you down? Yeah, um, I have great colleagues and friends that I talk great. with a lot about how how we're navigating, you know, okay. work, um, our time with our children and how we impact them. And of course, I also know that I'm not the only person who's influencing their life. It's not, you know, but at the same time, I do know that the way I speak to them really matters. Yeah. 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 So what are the, uh, well, you kind of already answered this. Kind of answered both these. I'll just ask them anyway. What are some of the unexpected hurdles of motherhood? Unexpected hurdles. Yeah, I mean, that, right, is sort yes. of you can get stuck in the decision-making every time. I think for me also, something I have not found a solution for, though I'm very aware of the challenge. Um, I want my children to be able to do the things that they get joy out of and that they can learn from and they can grow Um but they have, in this area, one of the amazing things about living in this area, but something I also find a challenge as a parent, is they really have the opportunity to do all the things, right? <laughs> but they don't have the time or energy to do all the things. And sometimes I don't have the time or energy to drive them to all the things yes. and to really be as present as I want to be if I did drive them to all the things. So yes. that decision-making over making choices... I'm not always good at saying no to opportunities anyway in my day-to-day operations myself and then to say no to my children's opportunities to help them curate what they have access to. It's a great privilege that we have and I really recognize that, but I also feel it as a responsibility to try to help navigate that for my family um, and for my own time and energy as well, right? So it's a challenge I actually really hadn't anticipated and growing up um, in the environment I grew up, I had a wonderful childhood. I'm very grateful for it. But, you know, I wanted to play the clarinet. There weren't any clarinets or anyone to teach me. So I didn't have that chance. And that's fine. Um, and certainly I'm not trying to get my kids to play the clarinet now because <laughs> I do, although I'm tempted. Right. Um, but my oldest loves the cello. That's her instrument. Um, maybe my middle will play the clarinet. But, you know, I mean, but at the same time, yeah, I sort of have to help them make those choices because they may also say, oh, well, that sounds good. That sounds good. They haven't had the experience. Um, yeah, that's something I hadn't anticipated, really. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the unexpected joys of motherhood? Oh, 
I mean, yeah, I knew this because I've spent a lot of time with many, many children and I care deeply about them as people. But wow, when you first see your child and then you bring them home and then every day and sometimes when I wake up and see them just, yeah, that that. It sounds very corny, but it really that feeling of just deep care for another person and deep connection. Yeah, it's a great joy. Even when, um, even when they've come into my bed and haven't slept so well as a result and all of that, that, yeah, that deep care for another person, it's, it's a great joy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's beautiful. So uh, lastly, do you have any questions for me? Oh, well, I have all the questions. <laughs> <laughs> I always do. Um, yeah, I'm curious. Um, I would love to hear more about what you've been yourself getting out of doing these podcasts and what you've learned and what the, you could, I know it could be many questions, what you've learned about yourself, about the college, about the people here, how it's connected you with folk. I'm really curious. Well, what I've learned is that it's it's a great kind of social lubricant, you know, like it makes it uh, easy to talk to someone. Yeah. So there's something about having this microphone that makes it easier to talk and open up. Yeah. I mean, I to- I told you that my father was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I I don't I don't know you, you yeah. know, but I felt I knew you because the there's something about the artifice of this yeah. that when you're open to it, you were talking earlier about being open, uh, staying open. When you're open to it, magic can happen. Yeah. And you can get a great conversation out of it. Uh, so for me, I've just found the more honest I can be uh, and also make sure that I don't hog the spotlight because I feel like I, that might be a shortcoming of mine <laughs> is, is a desire to do that sometimes. But um, what I've learned about people, uh, people, what I've learned about people is in this context, they usually want to do really well. Yeah. You know, they just want to do really well. They want to be accepted. They want to, they want to say something clever and uh, they, they like playing along, you know? Um, What do I think about this as far as our community? I, I think this could be a great resource for the community because, you can all listen to the same thing simultaneously or at different times of day, different times of night. You know, you can pop pop your earbuds in um, and listen to the Sarah Lawrence Library podcast uh, and, like, hear a great conversation between Kim Ferguson and Tim Kale, you know, where you, like, learn about early childhood development and, you know, like, then the next one you could go to uh, one of the faculty spotlights with Gene Shin um, and learn about l- art installations yeah. and stuff like that. Like to to just make the conversations s- just at undeniably interesting to the point where it like justifies itself. Yeah. To where the podcast is like the value here is in the quality of conversations and thoughts and ideas that you get out of the podcast. Um, so that that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's, it's a really wonderful thing for our community. And for me, 
an accumulation of individual people's stories is really what a community is in some ways, right? And uh, without having those conversations, you know, we, we're sort of looking at people in one or two dimensions, right? You only see a piece of them. Um, yes. Even if you get to know someone reasonably well, it's, it's only a piece of who they are. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Kim, thank you very much for being on the show. I was delighted. We should do it again sometime. Sure. Um, and what, what do you have? To, what are you going to do for the rest of the day? Uh, well, I have a meeting with all of our graduate program directors, and okay. we're checking in on various things that I mentioned earlier. So that'll be really good. And uh, then I have a few other meetings, uh, various things that we need to cover. What's today, Wednesday? And then I Wednesday. teach my theories of development class this evening. So oh, wow. That's that'll be great. I do have to pick up my kids and feed them dinner in between. So I'll do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I also have that class and a few conferences with students after. All yeah. right. Well, thank yeah. you. This has been great. Yeah, it has been. Thanks. Thank you. All righty. Thus concludes this episode of the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. Thank you again to Kim for sharing your time and insights with us. It was most enjoyable speaking with you. If you'd like more from the SLC Library Podcast, then go and listen to one of our many talks with staff, faculty, students. Everyone is welcome on the show. Remember to give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And visit the library website where you can check your library account, reserve a study room, book a consultation with one of our research librarians at sarahlawrence.edu slash library. The Sarah Lawrence Student Life Preservation Project is accepting contributions. Visit slcstudentlifeproject.omeka.net for more information. That URL will be in the show notes. You may have noticed a new sound playing in this episode. The music that you're hearing is by our very own Ruby Arthur. Thank you, Ruby, for contributing your music. I absolutely love it. I love the tone, the style. Everything fits with exactly what I'm going for, and I look forward to more in the future. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, just email me at fkl at sarahlawrence.edu. That's F as in Francis, K-L, K-A-I-L, at sarahlawrence.edu. Thank you one and all for sharing your time with us. We look forward to doing it again next week. Thank you.